Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen, a student at Oberlin College and co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy organization based at Oberlin College. My guest today is Duncan Hollis, professor of law at Temple University, Beasley School of Law, non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and member of the Organization of American States Inter-American Juridical Committee. We will be discussing his forthcoming article, Beyond Naming and Shaming, Accusations and International Law in Cybersecurity, co-authored with Martha Finnemore, University Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University. Welcome, Professor Hollis. Luce, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to be with you as well. So would you like to talk a little bit about this paper and how you got uh, to writing about this topic? Sure. Um, so this is actually the second article uh, Martha Finnemore and I have written together. Uh, we had both met working with uh, MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab on a grant a number of years ago, and we'd been working on this idea of of norms uh, in in cyberspace. Uh, that is, you know, expectations of appropriate behavior for actors of a given community, and and how do you construct norms in the novel technical uh, environment, and particularly how do you construct norms for nation states? That is, what can states uh, do? What are they prohibited from doing? What are they required to do? What are they permitted to do? And we'd written together kind of a, a big, broad brushstroke piece uh, that looked at um, the prospect of strategically constructing cyber norms and, and thinking about how, the for some, norms represented an alternative to law, although I think our research was pretty keen to show that norms and law have a, have a more complex relationship. Um, and one of the things we were, were thinking in that in that work was well how how do you how do you constitute new norms how do you how do you build new norms and this new piece is is a, a deeper dive into that um, that possibility and we've done it by looking at a, a concept we call accusations um, and so um, uh, for people who've studied uh, international relations that may be familiar with the idea of naming and shaming which is a, a way that you know states or other actors, particularly NGOs or advocacy communities will go out and they will, uh, you know, name bad actors, call them out for things that they're doing and in the, in the expectation that once, uh, their transgressions are brought into the light, they'll change their behavior and, and act more appropriately. Um, we see in cybersecurity that there's been a recent, uh, uh, effort to, to, implement naming and shaming, uh, particularly among states or by states. And there have been, I think now, I think in our paper, 22 cases where a state has been accused of conducting a, a cyber operation. And for us, um, this paper was built out of two problems. One was that these accusations that are being made, you know, 22 times one state is called out another state or a, a private cybersecurity company is called out a, a state like, you know, North Korea and said they were responsible for the WannaCry ransomware. Uh, and the, the, the accused hasn't really changed their behavior. And so some people say, oh, well, this naming and shaming, it's not worth anything. It's not, it's not actually, if it's not producing enforcement, if it's not producing conformance, it's not worth anything. And, and what we thought was interesting was that that takes a really narrow view of what this idea of, of making an accusation is. And indeed, the, the very label naming and shaming in our, our sense was probably too narrow. Um, 
And so we wanted to think about a broader concept, uh, which we call accusation, which is when uh, when somebody attributes responsibility for an action to someone, exposes it perhaps in some way and condemns it in some way, what what can that do besides simply bringing about enforcement? And, and so our paper was an attempt to think about the functions of accusations. And because I'm an international lawyer, we wanted to think about those functions in with respect to international law. Because the, the second problem that we saw that kind of led us to write this piece was we've got all these accusations and not only are they not necessarily changing anybody's behavior, but there's a dearth of international law in the accusations. So when the U S accuses Russia of intervening in the 2016 election, you know, it, it condemns Russia for doing it, but doesn't say that any international law was violated or when uh, the North Koreans are accused of hacking Sony pictures um, the President Obama at the time came out and said it was an act of cyber vandalism, um, bad behavior. But again, there was kind of no attempt to to invoke or bring international law into the conversation. And so the kind of the second aspect of this piece was to think about not only what is this concept of accusation, but how does it relate to the application or the operation of international law in cyberspace? Right. So when the term naming and shaming is generally used, I tend to think of, you know, the most egregious examples, genocide, torture, etc. Uh, how is there a big difference between the gulf between uh, naming and shaming and uh, your preferred term accusations? So, so I think two things. One, you're absolutely right that when we think about naming and shaming, it's often being used in a context where the thing for which you're being named and shamed is is widely accepted um that you know everyone agrees genocide is horrific and should never be engaged in everybody at least gives lip service to the idea that torture is horrific and should never be engaged in and so what we what we see on the one hand with all these practices is that there's an assumption that when you you name and shame you call out uh somebody for for something that everyone would agree is bad I think with our idea of accusation is we don't uh, we don't assume that right we we don't assume that there is a, a already some pre-agreed universally accepted uh inappropriate behavior that that must be at the the core of 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 our concept. And then I think the the second thing is naming and shaming uh, by its very uh, terminology implies that the accused that the person that is named and you know and shamed will be shamed by the uh, by the naming that the, the that by naming someone it will generate uh, shame and that will change behavior and particularly I think as I said with respect to cybersecurity we don't see that we don't see uh, Russia or China being named feeling any sense of shame they either deny that they did the act of which they're accused. Uh, or they insist it's you know um, these are perfectly appropriate uh, activities, uh, or they suggest it must be someone else. Because again, the interesting thing about cyberspace is that the anonymity uh, that the architecture allows makes it often difficult uh, to you know uh, demonstrate uh, the causal link between the bad act and the accused or named and shamed bad actor. So so for us. I don't think we have a, we're opposed to the concept uh, of naming and shaming so much as we thought that it was probably insufficient and incomplete, and, and we think the the concept of an accusation could do more work both for international relations scholars and for international lawyers. So, you say that in your paper that uh, 
accusations are comprised of at least two of the three following discrete processes, uh, attribution, exposure, and condemnation. Would you like to talk about that for a little bit? Sure. And again, that's, it kind of ties in. If you think about naming and shaming, it's only got two uh, elements, the naming and the shaming. Uh, and as I just suggested, that shaming is a big question mark. Uh, I think it may be a question mark generally, uh, but it's certainly a question mark in, in cyberspace. So, um, you know, I think with respect to human rights, there is some empirical research that shows that naming can produce shaming, but we don't see that here. And I think what's more is it it um, it leaves out the possibility uh, of of the the that you can do these things with varying levels of exposure. When we tend to think of naming and shaming, we tend to think of you know Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International calling out some government actor or some you know uh, criminal organization for for bad behavior. Uh, we wanted to kind of neutralize it uh, normatively, if you might say, and think about it more in terms of the, the, the attribution, which is the idea that we're going to associate whatever happened with a particular author or, or even just particular origin, territory, or what have you. And then this idea of exposure refers to the fact that we, you can do so, um, you do so by disclosing it to third parties, but it doesn't always mean to be disclosed to the public, uh, to the world. You could disclose it within a closed group of trusted actors, or you could communicate privately to the actor you're accusing and have a have a kind of a offline bilateral communication. And then beyond attribution and exposure, we think accusations also include a condemnation, right? That is the process of signaling disapproval of what happened. I think we think that each of these three can comprise an accusation, and, and some cases like, say, the, the U.S. accusations about Russian election interference in 2016, you saw all three at work. But it's also possible that you can have an accusation that only has two of three. So, for example, uh, you can attribute and condemn something without exposing it. You can, as I said, maybe make your accusation through diplomatic channels or privately. Uh, or you could even expose and condemn something that happened without disclosing or even knowing who was responsible. So uh, in 2018, for example, there was a discovery of uh, what's called Triton or Trisis malware uh, in an industrial facility in Saudi Arabia. And what was remarkable was that the malware was designed in a way to, to, to take out the safety uh, systems in place in this industrial uh, architecture. And so quite literally, it, it was set up so that, you know, people could get hurt or killed uh, if the malware were to work effectively. It, it actually had uh, a, 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 apparently an internal error of some kind, and it didn't actually operate as intended. So happily, we, we don't believe anyone died as a result. Um, but what you saw was an accusation made quite publicly by a number of, of cybersecurity companies uh, with a um, exposed uh, what this malware was, and they condemned it uh, as something that that you know no responsible actor should engage in, um, without actually saying you know that that who was responsible. Um, and we think that's an accusation just as much as the U.S. accusation against Russia in 2016 is, even though uh, there wasn't an you know an attribution uh, component to it. Although I, I should note subsequently, I do think it's been, it has also been attributed to Russia at least by several cybersecurity companies. Uh, I'd like to continue on that vein of cybersecurity companies. Um, you note in your paper that accusations by private cybersecurity companies may serve an economic function, as uh, there was a report by Mandiant, a uh, 
cybersecurity company of Chinese cyber espionage that caused their economic success. So is this another pressure on, you know, not only states, but also non-state actors like uh, corporations and private hacktivists, for example? Yeah, so I, I should actually I should have said this at the outset, but I'll, I'll make it now that you you bring up the companies. I should I should note for your listeners that in addition to being a professor at Temple Law School and, and having a number of other appointments, I, I also do consult in the field, and I am a, a consultant for for one of the big tech companies. In fact, for Microsoft um, on their campaign to promote digital peace uh, and uh, think about ways to better regulate cyberspace. So I, you know, with that disclosed, and it's disclosed in the paper as well. Um, you know, to your question, um, one of the things we were doing and mentioning the 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 role Mandiant has played was to kind of try and tease out um, what functions an accusation might serve, and obviously. For a company like Mandiant that made the front page of the New York Times with its accusations uh, against uh, the Chinese People's Liberation Army for targeting various uh, U.S. industry with, you know, commercial, you know, cyber espionage. Obviously, um, there was, uh, you know, there was an attempt there to to name and shame and try and call out the Chinese and get them to stop. But it had a secondary effect, which was it brought to everyone's attention that Mandiant was a cybersecurity company and apparently a quite good one. Uh, and it made them a lot of money. So one of the things we do in the paper is try and identify a, a number of different functions uh, an accusation can serve. And so one of them is, is this very same function that would be attributed to naming and shaming, which is you want to get enforcement, right? You want you want to get the the accused to conform to whatever uh, activity uh, you want them to either stop engaging in or or to you know something you want them to do affirmatively. Um, as the Mandiant example shows, you you could I guess be doing it to try and make accusations to to build your brand and make money. Um, but we actually focus on on three others. Um, the uh, one of which is that you could be making the accusation for defensive purposes. So you want to get word out that um, this uh, that this activity is going on. This malware is out there. Share the indicators of compromise so that others can defend against it. Um, so that Triton Trisis example I gave a, a moment ago would be a good example of that. So I think part of the reason there was accusations there was to for defensive purposes to help everybody defend against it. You might also do an accusation for deterrent purposes, right? That you want to signal maybe not just to the accused, but to other actors in the community that you have the capability to identify that the activity is going on, perhaps have the ability to uh, attribute it in some ways, and, and you're willing to expose it in some ways. And others who kind of watch the accusation may take note and it may change their cost benefit calculates for for acting. And, and I would include those that might be watching would include obviously states, but also non-state actors. Uh, so as you said, hacktivists and the like. I think from a lawyer's perspective, the, the thing that we wanted this piece to emphasize in particular was one final function, and that's a constitutive function. That is that these accusations uh, start a process of communication between not just the accuser and the accused, but the accuser and the whole community, the international community, um, that can lead to the constitution of new norms or maybe even new law. Um, so part of the function in uh, states calling out electoral interference or calling out commercial cyber espionage and making accusations about them is to signal not only their disapproval, but to seek others' agreement that this activity is unwarranted 
or unwarranted uh, in a way that builds a belief that it's inappropriate to engage in that behavior. And eventually states might actually agree not only that it's a practice they shouldn't engage in, but at some point it might build to what we international lawyers call opinion juris, that you, you don't do it out of a sense of legal obligation. Uh, you, you withhold that activity because you're legally required to withhold from doing that sort of behavior. Or maybe you have to engage in due diligence to clean up malware that's uh, originating in your territory. And if states do that long enough, and they come to practice it, and they believe that practice has, has some legal underpinnings, you could constitute customary international law. So what we were hoping in this piece to do then was to not only move beyond the idea of naming and shaming uh, that's occupied international relations, international law to date, but also show that an accusation can do much more than shame, that it can defend, it can deter, and that it can be a key component uh, in constituting new rules and uh, new uh, international law. So under what environment is this all taking place? Uh, in the normative environment with the uh, current understandings of how international law might regulate these cyber actors with the Taylor manual and whatnot, what environment are these accusations and these activities taking place in today? So, I mean, I think in terms of the 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 factual environment, we're we're I think in a situation of what I'd call cyber insecurity, um, or as international relations scholars like to emphasize, you know, the the anarchy is quite evident right now. Um, we have, uh, as you noted, hacktivists. We have cyber criminal organizations. We have nation state intelligence agencies engaged in widespread surveillance, uh, as disclosed by Edward Snowden. Um, and we now have, you know, military uh, offensive and defensive cyber operations. Um, there are, I think, uh, you know, dozens of states that now have uh, put together, you know, arms of their military dedicated to cyber. Uh, the United States has stood up since 2010 U.S. Cyber Command. So it's no longer just Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines. There's now U.S. Cyber Command. It has 6,000 cyber warriors. And, and so we have a lot of actors in this space engaging in a lot of activity. And I don't think we're in a world where there's no norms or no international law. We, we have both. There's just a lot of um, ambiguity and uh, disagreement uh, about it. So I like to think that, you know, we've got some, what I'd say, some existential challenges to think about like Jean-Paul Sartre. There, you know, there's some fundamental debates, particularly among states about what the, what, international law that applies outside of space, cyberspace exists within cyberspace. So reportedly, the Chinese government, for example, has suggested that um, international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict doesn't apply in cyberspace. The U.S. has kind of suggested that maybe due diligence doesn't apply in cyberspace. And then we have a bunch of interpretive issues where oh, we all agree on what the international law is, like Every state agrees there's a duty of non-intervention, and every state agrees that they're prohibited from using force in cyberspace unless in self-defense or under Security Council authorization. But we don't know what a use of force looks like in cyberspace. We're not. We're not. We haven't. We haven't figured out a common interpretation. And then I think what we're also seeing is an environment, as I suggested at the outset, of silence, where even amidst this disagreements about what the which rules apply and what they mean. We're also not seeing them invoked. Uh, so as you suggested, you know, we have this thing called the Talon Manual or Talon Manuals that that purport to describe how existing international law would apply 
to cyber operations. Um, but as a recent article in the American Journal of International Law by Dan Afrani and Yuval Shaney suggested, you know, it's on the shelf. States aren't pulling it out. They're not citing it. Um, so, you know, in all these accusations that we're discussing in this pa- paper, there's only really one that mentions international law. And that was the United Kingdom um, accusing Russia of responsibility for a range of cyber uh, attacks, both in, <coughs> excuse me, in Great Britain, but also against like the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, which was studying the nerve agent used uh, in the uh, the terrorist or, or assassination attempt, I should say, in Salisbury, England. Um, and you know that's the only case, at least I'm aware of, where there's been an accusation of another state engaging in a cyber operation that's been suggested, oh, by doing this cyber operation, you're violating international law. Most of the time, uh, the accuser simply says, uh, we condemn what you're doing because it violates international norms, or we just condemn it without trying to explain on what basis the condemnation is being made. And so that's kind of where we are. Um, and that's why I think, you know, what will be interesting to see as we get more and more of these accusations is do we start to constitute or construct uh, more agreement as to what the appropriate rules are, what they mean, uh, and and actually ha- seeing them, you know, pulled off the shelf uh, and used in practice. So I got to ask, what do you believe is the reason why uh, things like the Talon Manual are left on the shelf when state governments make these kinds of naming shaming strategies and you know in your paper that the trump administration has touted enforcement as the core of its naming and shaming strategy you think that it would be strengthened through calls towards international law or are there perhaps other methods that should be used so i think first of all i think you know cyber security is not a single problem uh, it's a problem set. And so in terms of thinking about responses or regulation, you have, I think you have to think in terms of a, a multiple uh, or a pluralistic set of responses to this, to this problem. Uh, I think what's interesting about the U.S. naming and shaming campaign is that it's, it has relied on law, but it's been relying on domestic law. So what you're seeing with a lot of the U.S. accusations uh, tied to the Chinese People's Liberation Army or tied to uh, the Russian government or to the Iranian government is that they've all been um, often linked to domestic indictments. That is the use of U.S. criminal law to, um, you know, explain why the accusation was being made and to, you know, basically announce that if the named individuals ever end up within U.S. jurisdiction, they could face, you know, criminal uh, uh, prosecution and punishment. I think the tricky thing, of course, is that, you know, national laws only reach as far as the U.S. jurisdiction reaches. And the reality is, is that, uh, it's un- you know, unless any of these people unwisely takes a vacation to the United States or <clears throat> or somewhere that the United States might be able to extradite from, the, they're, they're not going to uh, face any, uh, you know, concrete consequences. And so one of the things I think we were thinking about in this paper was to to expand beyond and think about, well, is there a way to build international law in this space? Because international law regulates states directly, 
rather than through their proxies, through these individuals who presumably were under orders to act as they did. Uh, and instead of holding them accountable, actually trying to hold the state or the, the, the bureaucracy or the agencies of the state that engage in these behaviors uh, accountable for, for what, they're, what they're engaged in. Um, but, you know, I, make no mistake, I don't think this is some, I don't think accusations are a silver bullet by any means. They're a process of communication. Um, they, they, you know, they, they. I think they can have they can have significant and real world effects. But you, you know, you may think about the need for other measures uh, to, you know, uh, deter or even punish uh, those you believe have engaged in either um, wrongful behavior or even illegal behavior. So, you know, we've seen reports, for example, that on the the day of the midterm elections this past year in two thousand eighteen. Um, there was an, uh, some sort of cyber operation against the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, Russia, that's been affiliated with some of the electoral interference in the United States in the past. And they were apparently some of their servers were taken down. They were taken offline. Um, you know, that's not there's no accusation there. That's a, that's activity, um, you know, and, and that may have some effect in terms of either deterring or signaling uh, U.S. views or the views of whoever was responsible so, you know, I, I think it's important to think about accusations as part of a, a, a potential set of solutions and to think about them more broadly than just, uh, you know, the ideas that international relations and international lawyers have brought to the naming and shaming campaigns in the past. So regarding state activity and uh, cyber activity, um, you bring up in your paper Operation Olympic Games where – the United States targeted Iranian nuclear facilities in the Iranian nuclear program, and it was reported positively in the New York Times by reporter David Sanger. I believe Sanger's also written a book on uh, on uh, cyber attacks as the perfect weapon or whatnot. What's your take on you know these kinds of activities that are positively uh, reported, like Operation Olympic Games? So I think one of the things we wanted to get across was that accusations will resonate differently with different audiences. Um, and so it's not surprising that when North Korea is accused of uh, engaging in you know, stealing money from the Bangladesh uh, bank or per- perpetuating um, uh, the WannaCry malware that hit a, you know, 150 countries and hundreds of thousands of computers and caused like $4 billion worth of damage, you know, that in some cases, you know, the North Koreans are going to celebrate that as an achievement. They're they're going to they're not going to be condemned. They're going to they're going to think that it's a sign of their power. And so too, we can see that in other places where one person's condemnation is the other is is the is some other actor's moment for celebration or signal of their significance. So one of the things we we talk about in this piece and, and we've been thinking about is that you have to think about your accusation strategically. Right. So you have to think about not only what's the function you want the accusation to perform. Right. Do you want it to deter, to defend? Do you want to get enforcement? Do you want to get uh, the constitution of new international law or, or just new norms? And then, you know, what context are you operating? What's the what's the relevant audience? Is it just the accused? Is it some larger community of states or states and other stakeholders? And then how do you construct the accusation to, to best achieve those functions in that environment? And so we, we, in some sense, are trying to get both states and other stakeholders, as well as, you know, the scholars who will be reading this piece, the international relations scholars, the international lawyers, you know, to think about that accusations can be deployed 
in strategic ways uh, to achieve things and that you need to think carefully about how you would construct them. Do you really want to go completely public with your accusation or perhaps better, you know, it'll be more effective if it's communicated privately. If you're going to attribute the accusation, maybe it's best to attribute to a territory rather than to a specific government, because if you, you know, attribute to a government, it may get defensive and, um, you know, escalate rather than respond in a, a more productive way. So within cybersecurity, there's, uh, as you say, contested views on legality and propriety. So what you bring up in your paper is the uh, the OPM hack where uh, U.S. national security was endangered from uh, a hack on the uh, Organization for Personnel Management. Um, and under international law, this may be seen as, you know, uh, espionage rather than a full-on attack. So in all of these cases, how difficult is the kinds of regulatory and legal environment that a cyber attack may happen in? So I think the key is that it's not going to happen in a, a regulatory environment. It's going to happen in regulatory environments, plural. And so, you know, that OPM hack is, is a classic example where if the audience is the U.S. national security community, it's, you know, it's it's a low point for the for that community. The fact that the, the U.S., uh, personnel files of so many people were penetrated, uh, creating all sorts of risks for future intelligence targets, uh, extortion, blackmail, and the like. Um, but if you step out into the international law community, uh, espionage is one of the oldest professions and one that's been long tolerated by states. It's not prohibited explicitly by international law. And so, you know, you know, the international law regulatory environment is unlikely to do much work for you uh, in its current form to uh, deal with uh, widespread cyber espionage, um, you know, as opposed to, say, using national law. Of course, as I said at the outset, the problem with national law and cybersecurity is it, it tends to run out of steam when it gets beyond its own borders. And so, you know, the question with things like the OPM hack is, is there any building consensus that the existing rules should change? And so I, I think from the U.S. perspective, the answer is clearly no. And you, you saw that where uh, James Clapper, who was the director of national intelligence at the time, took his hat off to the Chinese government, said, you know, we would have done the exact same thing to them if we could. So in that sense, that that interchange, that accusation um, doesn't have much condemnation with it. Uh, and therefore, I don't think it's likely to kind of build towards or constitute some new rule that qualifies or limits what sort of cyber espionage states can perpetuate against each other. And it stands in contrast to efforts that were made by the U.S. and China in the Obama administration to limit a different type of espionage, cyber espionage, and that was commercial cyber espionage, where you're doing cyber espionage against companies to get their intellectual property, their their trade secrets, and you know to then advance your own uh, home team businesses or industry. And, and you did have some agreement, I think, between, first between the U.S. and China there. And then later on between the, the whole G20 stood up and said, we, we think that cyber espionage for commercial advantage should be prohibited. Um, so we saw those accusations have a little bit more purchase and lead to at least the articulation of a norm. Although recent reports suggest there's been some some backsliding where 
China appears to be engaged in that kind of commercial cyber espionage again. And what's not clear is it, is it that a reaction to uh, the change in administration or change in the administration's policy on other matters like trade and intellectual property? Um, but it does kind of suggest that you need to think if you're thinking strategically, you need to be aware of what's the what's the range of regulatory environments in which you could operate and and where and on what basis is an accusation most likely to have uh, effect. And sometimes you want to make that accusation by relying on national law. Sometimes you want to make an accusation. And, and we think in this paper we could do more making accusations that invoke international law. Sometimes you make accusations and you invoke professional standards or cultural uh, or societal norms. So, you know, hey, this this is something democratic states don't do, right? Calling on the idea that if you're a democratic state, you're not going to do this. That's not calling on law. It's not calling on national law or international law, but it's still an accusation that tries to uh, either change behavior or build a norm uh, by reference to some cultural standards and the like. So it seems here that there's an interest in uh, by the commercial community to pay attention to these developments. So uh, naming and shaming uh, as we mentioned before, can involve cybersecurity firms, but is there also going to be developments in the uh, in international law based on the accusations that private companies uh, who get hacked, uh, Sony, if they had called out North Korea directly during their attacks on uh, Sony films, how is that going to, number one, affect the calculus of how managers might approach international law by corporations, and number two, uh, how it's going to affect the overall development of the international law. Yeah, from a, from a company perspective, it's interesting. I mean, we're not – I mean, I, I think it's probably only a decade or so ago that the, the, the manager's perspective, the firm perspective was that if you got hacked, you kept quiet about it. There was, there was, no, there was no advantage to publicizing the fact that you had suffered – losses, whether of your intellectual property or your, you know, your communications or let alone that, you know, uh, somebody had actually bricked your servers uh, or something like that. And, and I think what's interesting because there was no advantage to doing so, right? Like all you would do is like you, your stock prices would go down. You might get shareholder lawsuits and the like. We're seeing, I think a little bit, uh, there's been a change in that, um, that, that dynamic. And, and some of it may be that, you know, certain cybersecurity companies see there's value in, in building their own business by being able to make accusations and show they have the capacity to do it. I think some states are interested in using uh, either cybersecurity companies or victims to publicize uh, what's happened to them as a way for the state to make the accusation or to proxy, you know, kind of stand behind and proxy the accusation. Um, uh, but it's interesting because I think at the same time, states are also a little hesitant to have private company victims get too far, uh, into the game by which I mean, you know, for example, there's, there's a lot of debate, um, in cybersecurity about, um, active defense. That is if you're a private company and somebody is, you detect malware or somebody in your system, um, you know, you could obviously defend your system, but can you go back and trace it to its origins and hit back, so to speak, uh, or hack back, as it's often called? Um, and you, where I, there, you, it's very interesting. You see states kind of putting the brakes, saying, no, 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 we don't want private companies hacking back. It, it might lead to situations that escalate where we don't want a private U.S. company, for example, uh, hacking back uh, against uh, a Chinese company or even the Chinese government and then having the Chinese government respond against the United States government and suddenly we're escalating into a diplomatic crisis or even an armed conflict. 
So I think what's what remains to be seen is how we navigate going forward in terms of whether accusations are going to be something that states kind of totally control and they encourage certain accusations by private companies and discourage others, or whether private companies are going to start to see value in themselves saying, maybe we can't hack back, but maybe we can join together and, you know, combine our voices to make an accusation, even when a state won't do so because of, you know, it's concerned about trade or it's concerned about other foreign policy interests. Um, so I think that's kind of the next stage of the inquiry is, What's the capacity for these other stakeholders to do not just uh, unilateral accusations, but collective accusations? And I should say there's also a question of could states do collective accusations? It seems more powerful when, you know, eight states accuse North Korea of wanna cry than, than, you know, when just the U.S. accuses North Korea of the Sony Pictures hack and everybody suspects that they must be making it up. You know, once you start to get more numbers behind the accusation, uh, it gives it more credibility and more power. So I know that you're involved with helping promote uh, cyber peace in the private sector. So I'd just like to ask, what's your initial reaction when you hear the words, you know, hack back? What would your response be? So I, I, I think I'm, I, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, right, we, we live in a world where, uh, you know, to think about Thomas Hobbes, you know, he said life in the state of nature is short, nasty and brutish. And, and, and we've created these polities, these these states in which we reside who provide us with safety and security, right? They provide us with a system in whether in return for tax, taxes or military service. We, we have the comfort that knowing when something goes wrong, you can dial 911 or whatever the emergency number in your jurisdiction is and, and help will be on the way. Uh, and that if you get robbed, you can call uh, somebody and they'll come and investigate and they may catch whoever did it and they may punish them. I think the problem with cybersecurity is it's a global problem. And the more sophisticated actors realize that, and they leverage their activity in ways that make it unlikely that they're going to be caught or punished, thereby making it unlikely that when you're a victim and you call for help, you're going to get that help. Uh, and so in that sort of situation, you know, there is an argument that says, hey, you know, where the government isn't doing its job in defending us, we should be able to defend ourselves. I think the tricky thing is, that if you were just defending yourself and there were no externalities, um, that that would be one thing. But the reality is, is that when you're hacking back, you're often going to hack back through systems that the um, the bad actor has, you know, taken for its own purposes. So you may be getting the grandmother's computer in Luzerne, Switzerland, or you know, the young college student in Iowa. And they don't know that they're part of the botnet that's being used to perpetuate the malware or the denial of service uh, attack or what have you. And yet they're the ones who are going to suffer the hack back. Um, and so, or the other problem is, is that you hack back. And as I suggested, you think you're hacking back against a company in St. Petersburg, Russia, but in reality, you're hitting the Russian government itself. And you might then incentivize it to respond, not just against you, but against the government of the territory in which you are incorporated in which you reside. And so there's that risk of escalation. So, I, you know, my, my sense is that I do think there's probably room for thinking about more ways to uh, accept and promote active defense. But, I, you know, I'd want to think about whether maybe it should be licensed or it might, there should be, you know, agreed standards under which it operates, lest we have these problems with escalation or externality effects uh, that I think could be quite serious. So what would you like uh, 
scholars in both international relations and international law to take away from your paper. So, I, you know, I think the, the joy of doing interdisciplinary work is you get to work with someone as great as Professor Finnamore, who's, you know, for, for quite some time now worked on norms uh, from a political science perspective and, um, you know, and, and coming together, we've, we've tried to come up with a paper that kind of gives something to both disciplines. So for those people interested in construction, constructivism and international relations, interested in norms, this is a kind of a, a, a narrower case study of, well, how can you constitute norms? And, and this idea of accusations as a vehicle for constitution is one of the key takeaways of the paper. And, and more broadly, the idea of accusations itself and whether it has more purchase than the naming and shaming concept that's been used to date. I think for international relations scholars, we'd invite them, you know, to think about whether accusations could be evaluated in other contexts, whether, you know, international environmental law or obviously human rights, even nuclear proliferation, uh, support for terrorism. There's all sorts of ways accusations could be investigated and thought about from an international relations perspective. And for international lawyers, we often, you know, talk about, oh, customary international law is created through the practice of states. It's something that the International Law Commission has been studying. How do you identify what customary international law is uh, lately? And what we wanted in this piece to do was to kind of give a, a concrete example of, well, here's how customary international law can be constructed by states. You know, that, that an accusation isn't always going to lead to shaming, but it may actually lead to the development of new practices and over time new customary international law. And just as importantly, it can also stop international law from forming, right? So some of the things we emphasize about these accusations is if states hadn't stood up and called out against, say, the WannaCry malware or the electoral interference, then whether or not they say it's a violation of international law, the mere fact of signaling their disapproval unsettles any idea that maybe this behavior is just permitted. Uh, and so – that we think there really is a value for international lawyers to be thinking about accusations uh, as an iterative process by which the law can both uh, be facilitated and developed or, uh, you know, redirected in certain ways. And my final question, what would you want states and non-state actors, both hacktivists and cybersecurity companies and people who seek to both benefit and uh, harm from these developments, what would you like states and non-state actors to take away and change in their behavior because of this body of scholarship? So I think it kind of uh, several things. I think, first of all, we, we'd like uh, both states and, and, and other stakeholders to recognize um, to not actually dismiss accusations so quickly. I think you've seen a lot of dismissal oh, because naming and shaming North Korea or naming and shaming Russia hasn't worked. We should just declare the whole project uh, dead and move on to, to striking back directly or, or the like. Our pieces, I, I think our hope is that states and other stakeholders will read this or think about this idea and recognize that maybe they've got the wrong set of expectations for what these accusations might do. And then second, understand that there's a lot more accusations could be doing in terms of deterrence, in terms of defense, and in terms of constituting norms and law. And, you know, what we were hoping in this piece was to offer, offer kind of a strategic toolbox or toolkit for thinking about, well, how do I combine my attribution with my exposure, with my 
um, condemnation and how do I do it with respect to certain accused in certain audiences as opposed to others? What sort of uh, condemnations do I make? Do I invoke law? Do I invoke national law? Do I invoke international law? Do I invoke uh, norms that are outside of law? And in, in that sense, we were hoping that we would be providing states and other stakeholders kind of a, a new vehicle for stabilizing cyberspace in some ways, uh, given the current normalization of insecurity that I suggested we have. Um, and then finally, I think as an international lawyer, and this is maybe more me personally than Professor Finnamore, I'm hoping that's, that some of these accusations start to recognize that there could be value in in invoking a state's interpretation of international law when they're making an accusation that if you you know believe internally that there's a violation um that you should call it out as opposed to i think what's happening now is most states think oh well i don't want this to come around and bite me so i want operational flexibility so i'm not going to invoke international law i, I hope our piece is a, is a signal to states and other stakeholders that there can be real value and costs imposed on other actors by bringing international law into the accusation. And so we're hoping our, our piece is at least a catalyst for more thinking about that. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you for coming onto the podcast to talk about your work, Professor Hollis. It was a real pleasure. I enjoyed it. What can ail thee, knight-at-arms, alone and palely loitering? The sedge has withered from the lake, and no birds sing. Oh, what can ail thee, knight-at-arms, so haggard and so woe-begone? The squirrel's granary is full, and the harvest's done. I see a lily on thy brow, with anguish moist and fever dew. And on thy cheeks a fading rose fast withereth too. I met a lady in the meads, full beautiful, a fairy's child. Her hair was long, her foot was light, and her eyes were wild. I made a garland for her head, and bracelets too, and fragrant zone. She looked at me as she did love, and made sweet moan. I set her on my pacing steed, and nothing else saw all day long. For sidelong would she bend, and sing a fairy's song. She found me roots of relish sweet, and honey wild, and manner dew. And sure in language strange, she said, I love thee true. She took me to her elfin grot, and there she wept, and sighed full sore. And there I shut her wild, wild eyes with kisses for. And there she lullied me asleep, and there I dreamt, ah, woe betide, the latest dream I ever dreamt on the cold hillside. I saw pale kings and princes too, pale warriors, Death pale were they all. They cried, La belle dame sans merci hath thee in thrall. I saw their starved lips in the gloam with horrid warning gaped wide, 
And I awoke and found me here on the cold hillside. And this is why I sojourn here, alone and palely loitering, though the sedge has withered from the lake and no birds sing.